Beginning to speak about Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, people are aware that it's the third holiest site in Islam. And many people are aware of the famous hadith that's reported by Al-Bukhari and Muslim, in which Rasulullah he says, as is reported by Abu Sa'id Al-Khudri, journeys, religious journeys, are not undertaken except to three places. Al-Masjid Al-Haram, which is in Mecca, wa masjidi hadha, and my masjid, meaning the one in Medina, and Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, which is in Jerusalem. And so what this hadith did is it restricted the undertaking of religious journeys or pilgrimages or seeking uh, reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the visitation itself of any particular masjid on this earth except for these three. And so Baytul Maqdis is the abode of the prophets, the abode of Yaqub, the prayer place of Dawood, the prayer place of Mary, and the abode of Suleiman, Solomon, and Zechariah, and John the Baptist, and Jesus, all of these prophets walk through that land. Now, I wanted to share a number of qualities about Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, but before I did that, I found it appropriate that you have to zoom out. Because one of the things that makes Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa unique is that it is placed in a general region that is blessed. And that region is the region of Asham. And so before talking about the blessings of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa in particular, I wanted to speak about the blessings of Asham as a region. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, Subhana alladhi asra bi'abdihi laylan min al-Masjid al-Haram ila al-Masjid al-Aqsa alladhi barakna hawla. The first verse in Surah Al-Isra. Allah says, exalted is He, is the one who took his slave on a night's journey from al-Masjid al-Haram in Mecca to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, the one that we blessed its surrounding areas. And so here, you notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just call the masjid itself blessed, but Allah calls the surrounding area of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa blessed. And that is the area of Asham. Asham is the area that covers four modern day countries. And that is Syria, and Lebanon, and Jordan, and Palestine. And the Sham is a blessed and sacred land that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destined to be the place of revelations, the birthplace of prophets, and the refuge of godly men. Of the virtues that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions of a Sham and the fact that it's blessed is mentioned in many verses of the Quran. Of them is Surah Al-Isra, the first verse that I just mentioned. Also, in Surah Al-Anbiya, verse 71, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَنَجَّيْنَاهُ وَلُوطًا إِلَى الْأَرْضِ الَّتِي بَارَكْنَا فِيهَا لِلْعَالَمِينَ Allah says, and we saved him, meaning Ibrahim, and Lut, to the land that we blessed for the entire world, or for the worlds. And even with Musa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَوْرَثْنَا الْقَوْمَ الَّذِينَ كَانُوا يُسْتَضْعَفُونَ مَشَارِقَ الْأَرْضِ وَمَغَارِبَهَا الَّتِي بَارَكْنَا فِيهَا Allah says, and we caused the people who had been oppressed to inherit the eastern regions of the land and the western ones, which we had blessed. In Surah Al-A'raf, verse 137. And so Al-Hasan Al-Basri and Qatada, they both said that this land that's blessed, that Allah is talking about, is Asham. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about Musa himself, that he says in Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse 21, when Musa had been part of the exodus, or he had led the exodus rather, and they had left Egypt, and they had approached the city of Jerusalem, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded them to go enter 
and if they were to fight, they would be victorious. And so Musa alayhi salam, he says, يَا قَوْمِ ادْخُلُوا الْأَرْضَ الْمُقَدَّسَ الَّتِي كَتَبَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ وَلَا تَرْتَدُّوا عَلَىٰ أَدْبَارِكُمْ فَتَنْقَلِبُوا خَاسِرِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or Musa alayhi salam, he says, O oh my people, enter into al-ard al-muqaddasa. Enter into the holy land. Now, something interesting about this concept al-muqaddas, one of the main meanings of al-muqaddas is al-mubarak. And so we see that it is something that's consistent. And this is appropriate. Why? Because one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-quddus. And it's translated as the holy. And that's great. But how do you access that name? How do you access the name Al-Quddus. Well, one of the main manifestations or one of the main aspects of this name is that he is the one who blesses. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who decrees places to be blessed like Mecca and Medina and Asham. So when we hear that Al-Ard Al-Muqaddasa, we know now that one of the meanings of Al-Ard Al-Muqaddasa or even the name of the city Al-Quds itself is blessed. It is a place that is incredibly fruit-bearing. It is a place that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed with revelation and with prophets. And even after the death of the prophets, it's amazing when you think of and you reflect on how many of the great scholars of Islam, people whose names are pronounced on the tongues of every Muslim, whether it's Imam al-Nawi or Ibn Taymiyyah or al-Dhahabi or Ibn Kathir or many, many, many famous scholars in the past and the present, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, they were all from this region of Asham. Nonetheless, Sulaiman's kingdom as well was in Asham. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about Sulaiman, Sulaiman alimin. And to Solomon we subjected the wind blowing forcefully, proceeding by his command towards the land which we had blessed, and we are ever of all things knowing. In Surah Al Anbiya, verse 81. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about Saba that they, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, had placed between them and the cities which we had blessed many visible cities. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the cities that he has blessed. And those cities that he's talking about are cities in Asham. And so many, many, many different verses are talking about this land being a land that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed. But not just that. If you look at the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, you'll find that he many times spoke about the blessings of Asham, spoke about the blessings of this region. When we hear about the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and all of these hadith that I'm going to list, I'm probably going to miss list six or seven of them. I want you to remember that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was alive, Asham was not Muslim. When he was alive, there was no Islam in Asham. So he was talking about a place that up until that time no Muslims had approached, and yet he is praising Asham and talking about Asham being this incredibly special place, this place that is going to be such a, a pillar for the Ummah of Islam. And that is part of his prophecy, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, the first hadith is Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as narrated by Zayd ibn Thabit. He says, he says We were with Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam collecting the Quran on pieces of cloth. And then Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he said, Tuba al-Sham. Great news for Asham, glad tidings. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, what for? Why is that? He says, because the angels of Ar-Rahman are spreading their wings over it. And so this is in At-Tirmidhi. And so those Sahabah, their world is between Mecca and Medina and the Arabian Peninsula. And the Prophet is telling them that the angels of Ar-Rahman are spreading their wings over this area of Asham. Or the second hadith 
The Prophet ﷺ tells us that the Asham is the chosen land of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Hawala, he says, that Rasulullah ﷺ, he says, he said that there will come a time when you will be armed troops. One group of troops will be in Asham, and another group of troops will be in Al-Iraq, and another group of troops will be in Yemen. And so Ibn Hawala, he said, Ya Rasulullah, if I live to see that time when the Muslims will be in these groups, choose for me, which one should I go to? So the Prophet ﷺ, he told him, he said, go to Asham, for it is Allah's chosen land to which his best servants will be gathered. And the hadith continues, and this is in Abu Dawood, authenticated by Shaykh al-Albani. Third hadith here, the Prophet ﷺ mentions that the pillar of the book was placed in Asham. What does that mean? From Abdullah ibn Hawala, he says, that Rasulullah ﷺ, he says, I saw on the night that I was taken on the night's journey, a pillar that was white As if it is made of pearl It was being carried by the angels And I asked them and I said What are you carrying? And they said to him We are carrying the pillar of Islam And we were commanded to place it in Asham The Prophet ﷺ says And I saw a pillar that was being taken Almost as if it was from beneath my pillow and I thought that maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had left the people of earth. Like there was no more revelation or anything coming anymore to the people of earth. Or he says, I followed it with my eyes and I saw that it was something that was being carried to and placed in a sham, Amud al-Kitab. Al-Izz ibn Abd al-Salam, he says that this Amud al-Kitab, what the Prophet is describing, this pillar that is being placed in a sham, is Iman, it's faith. That faith is present in Asham And it is amazing when you think of Rasulullah talking to the Sahaba about Asham And this was a place that they had not even approached yet But he was informing them and letting them know that Asham would become Muslim And that Iraq would become Muslim And Yemen would become Muslim And in an authentic hadith he told them and he said That you will Conquer Al-Iraq And people will travel to it And Medina is better for them if they knew And you will conquer Yemen And people will travel to it People are going to want to move there And Medina is better for them if they knew And you will conquer Asham And people will travel there And they'll relocate there And they'll resettle there And he says And Medina better for them If they only knew but nonetheless, the virtues of Asham are undeniable. The Prophet ﷺ, in our fourth hadith here, he prayed for it to be blessed. Ibn Umar who he reports, and this hadith is in Bukhari, that the Rasulullah ﷺ says, Allahumma barik lana fi shamina, Allahumma barik lana fi yamanina. The Prophet ﷺ said, Oh Allah, bless our Sham and bless our Yemen. And then the people who are with him said, What about Najd? And Najd is an area that's Considered Iraq And so the Prophet ﷺ didn't respond And he just continued saying Allahumma barik lana fi shamina wa barik lana fi yaminina And then they said What about Najd? And Rasulullah ﷺ he says He commented to them about Najd And he said there that is where the earthquakes are And that is where the fitan are And from there emerges the head Of Satan But not only that Interestingly and amazingly Asham is a yardstick for the righteousness of the Ummah. 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa says in a hadith reported by a Tirmidhi who graded it as a Hasan Sahih hadith. He says, when the inhabitants of Asham become corrupt, then there is no good in you. When their morality has become uh, corrupted, when their religiosity, when their religion has become corrupted, and you'll be amazed to see that truly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues to test them and test them and test them in every time and place, right? That particular region, you know, people, they look at the Middle East and they say, man, that place is full of conflict and it's been conflict for thousands of years. And, you know, yes and no. And it is indicative of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala testing them and bringing them back that particular region to their Lord and to their religion and to his religion. Our sixth hadith is that there will always be a host of people from this ummah who are upon the truth. They are not afflicted by those who forsake them, those people who surrender them, those people who go against them. The Prophet ﷺ, he says, as the hadith of Umar ibn Hani, he says, I heard from Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan that Muawiyah said, I heard Rasulullah say, that there will continue to be from my ummah an ummah, a group of people who are upon the command of Allah. They will not be harmed by those who forsake them or those who will go against them until the command of Allah comes while they're on that state. If everybody changes their religion, they're not going to change their religion. If everybody lets go of the rope of Allah, they're going to hold on. They're not going to change. And yet, Mu'awiyah ibn Abi Sufyan was told that Mu'adh ibn Jabal, the great companion from the Ansar, Mu'adh ibn Jabal said, those people are in Asham. And the reality is with this particular hadith, you'll find that different people said different things. So Imam al-Bukhari and the scholars of hadith, they said about this particular group of people, because it's incredible praise from Rasulullah sallallahu They said that it, this is talking about Ahlul Hadith. That this... Hadith is talking about the people of Hadith That they're the ones who are holding on to the truth And they're the ones who are not changed And they're the ones And the way to resolve that Or a way to resolve it Is that this group can be different people at different times And different places in the ummah And so Mu'adh ibn Jabal He said that this is talking about the people of the of Asham And that is true And Imam al-Bukhari said it is talking about the people of Hadith And in reality during Imam al-Bukhari's time The people of Hadith they served Islam in a way that was required at their time. Different uh, times, people didn't necessarily need uh, hadith to be served in the way that the great collectors of hadith served during their lifetimes, right? And during that period of Islam. And so Islam, as it continues to evolve and as uh, the Muslim ummah continues to evolve, you're going to need people to serve the ummah in different capacities, in different ways. Nonetheless, that is the hadith of a group of people amongst my ummah. The seventh hadith here, the Prophet ﷺ tells us that Asham is a land of many shuhada. He says, Atani Jibril. He says, Jibril came to me carrying fever and plague. Fever was kept in Medina, and plague was sent to Asham. And plague is a martyrdom for my ummah and mercy and wrath upon the disbelievers. And so, plague has touched the region of Asham many times over. From the dawn of Islam, as early as the army of Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah, radiallahu anhu arda. Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah is one of Al-Ashar al-Mubashirin bi-Jannah. He's one of the ten who was promised paradise. And his army, 
in Syria was affected by plague in the year 638 to 639 after the Hijrah. And Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, because he loved Abu Ubaidah so much, when he heard of the plague, he wrote a letter to Abu Ubaidah and he told him, he said, come back, I need you for something urgent immediately in Medina. And what Umar needed was for Abu Ubaidah to live. And so when Abu Ubaidah heard of, received the letter from Amir al-Mu'mineen, he wrote him a letter back. And he said, I would like to stay with my my troops. And 25,000 Muslims died in that plague in Asham in 638 to 639. Great companions passed away, like Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah himself, like Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu. But not only that, when you fast forward and you look at the, you know, the, the plague of the Middle Ages, the Black Death, it touched Asham as well. And it was said that in the year 1348, between April 10th and May 10th, 10,000 people died in Gaza. And plagues affected in the years since then. Seven hadith is enough for Asham. I want to spend some time also speaking specifically about Baytul Maqdis and Masjid Al-Aqsa. And so as for Masjid Al-Aqsa, is that it was the second masjid ever built. Abu Dharr radiallahu anhu, he asked Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and this hadith is authentic, it's in Bukhari and Muslim. He says, which masjid was built first? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, al-masjid al-haram. That was the masjid that was built first. And then he said, which one is built after that? He says, al-masjid al-aqsa. And then he said, well, how much time was in between them? How much time was in between their two buildings? He said 40 years. And then the Prophet ﷺ told Abu Dhar, he says, and wherever you find the time for prayer, pray, because it is all a masjid for you, wherever you are. This brought up the debate of who built al-Masjid al-Haram and who built al-Masjid al-Aqsa. Because generally, if you were to, you know, common knowledge is that the Masjid al-Haram, al-Ka'bah was built by Ibrahim ﷺ and al-Masjid al-Aqsa was built by Sulaiman. But this hadith here, causes a person to question that narrative. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ authentically says that there's 40 years in between Al-Masjid Al-Haram and Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. And there are over a thousand years between Ibrahim and Sulaiman And so, how do we resolve this? The first opinion is that Adam built the Kaaba and then his children built Al-Aqsa. And so when you have the building of Ibrahim that would come later and the building of Sulaiman, it is simply rebuilding. Another opinion, and these are all mentioned by Ibn Hajar in Fath al-Bari. Another opinion is that Ibrahim built al-Kaaba and then he built al-Aqsa. And between the time, between them was 40 years. A third opinion is that Ibrahim built the Kaaba and Ya'qub, his grandson, built al-Aqsa. And Sulaiman rebuilt al-Aqsa. And there are more opinions that the angels built them and, and others as well. Nonetheless, it was the second masjid ever built for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on earth. And our second virtue of Al-Aqsa is that it is where the prophets intended and migrated to. It is where Ibrahim and Lut salam they migrated to. It is where Musa salam intended to take Bani Israel. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ in Bukhari, he tells us that Musa salam, when the angel of death came to approach Musa, Musa didn't recognize the angel of death and he slapped him a slap that blackened his eye. And so the angel of death returned to Allah and told him, he said, you have sent me to a servant who does not want to die. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the angel of death and he said, 
return to him and tell him to put his hand on the back of an ox and for every hair that he will that will come under it he will be granted one year of life and then Musa he said oh lord what will happen after that and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to him then death Musa said if that's the case then let it come now and then Musa then requested Allah to let him die close to the sacred land so much so that he would be at a distance of a stone's throw away from it let me come close to Al-Quds let me be just a stone's throw away from Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa he never, he never got there he never got the chance to ent- actually enter it because Bani Israel they rejected his offer when he told them to go in and fight and you will be of the victorious they said oh Musa you and your Lord go fight we're going to simply be sitting here and so what ended up happening was they then had to wander in the desert for many many years because of that Musa السلام, at the conclusion of his life and he never entered into the holy land he says oh Allah let me then just be a stone's throw away from it and Musa السلام, passed away a stone's throw away from it and Abu Huraira says that Rasulullah said if I were there I would show you his grave below the red sand hill on the side of the road so the Prophet knows where Musa's grave is interestingly another virtue of this place is that it experienced a miracle that no human being ever experienced ever before and that was that the sun stood still in its heavenly course for the conquest of Jerusalem the Prophet he told us that a prophet from amongst the prophets carried out a holy military expedition and this man, this prophet is Yusha bin Nun Yusha bin Nun was the, the young man who was the assistant of Moses in Surah Al-Kahf on his journey to Al-Khidr this man Yusha bin Nun would grow up to be a prophet and after Musa's uh, passing away Yusha bin Nun would lead his community, the children of Israel to capturing or conquering the city of Jerusalem how did that happen? the Prophet ﷺ, he says one prophet from amongst the prophets was in a military campaign and he said to his people he said let no man follow me he's addressing his, his army now and he says let no man follow me who has gotten married to a woman like you've done the contract but you haven't actually lived with her yet like if you have something that you're waiting for then don't come with me and let no man follow me who has built a house and he hasn't completed the roof over it and he says and let no man follow me who has sheep or she camels and he's waiting for the birth of their young ones and so Yusha bin Nun is basically saying if you have anything that you're waiting for in this world if there's anything that you're looking forward to something that you want to come back for then don't stay home he's not looking for numbers He's looking for sincerity. He's looking for ikhlas. And so the Prophet ﷺ says that this Prophet carried out the expedition and when he reached that town or the time or nearly at the time of the Asr prayer, he said to the sun, the sun was, it's time of Asr and the sun is about to set. He said, O sun, you are under Allah's order and I am under Allah's order. O Allah, stop the sun from setting. And the sun stopped. And this is in Bukhari. Because he didn't want the Sabbath to come. If the Sabbath came, then everything would be halted. And so he commanded, or he asked Allah to make the sun stop in its course. And the Prophet ﷺ, the hadith itself in Bukhari, it doesn't mention Yusha bin Nun. So how do we know that it's Yusha bin Nun? Because of a hadith that's reported by Ahmad. 
Abu Huraira says that Rasulullah says, the sun never stood still for anybody, ever, except for Yusha bin Nun, when he was campaigning to conquer Baytul Maqdis or Jerusalem. And so Baytul Maqdis is the abode of the prophets, the abode of Yaqub, the prayer place of Dawood, the prayer place of Mary, and the abode of Sulaiman, Solomon, and Zechariah, and John the Baptist, and Jesus. All of these prophets walked through that land. Either migrated there, were born there, or died there. It's an incredibly blessed place. What then when a person goes to Bayt al-Maqdis, when you go and you pray there, what's the, what's the reward? What do you get? The Prophet, peace be upon him, he told us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, of the prayer of Sulaiman. And so, whoever built the, the Bayt al-Maqdis the first time, Dawood began rebuilding it, but Sulaiman is the one who completed rebuilding it. And when Sulaiman built Baytul Maqdis, he prayed for three things. The Prophet ﷺ tells us, as reported by Ibn Majah, number one, he prayed for judgment that would be in harmony with God's judgment. He wanted his ruling to be in accordance with God's ruling. And the Prophet ﷺ said he was given that. And then he asked for a dominion, the likes that no one would ever have other than him. And the Prophet ﷺ says, and he was given that. As for the, first, the third thing, that nobody comes to this masjid not desiring to do anything in it except to pray, except that they leave that masjid having their sins forgiven like the day their mother gave birth to them. The Prophet ﷺ then commented and he says, he says, as for the first two, he was given. And I hope that he was given the third. And so a person goes and they pray in Baytul Maqdis hoping that when they leave that prayer, that their sins are forgiven. Of the virtues of Baytul Maqdis is that it is the first Qibla. The Prophet ﷺ, when he was in Mecca, he was directed to pray towards Jerusalem. And even when he migrated to Medina, he and the early Muslim community, while they were in Medina, and Mecca was south of them, for the first 16 months, they would pray north towards Jerusalem until the verses were revealed in Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then changed the direction of the Qibla to be from north to, towards Jerusalem, towards south, towards Mecca. But it was the first Qibla. And originally, the Qibla was the dome of the rock itself. And when the Muslim army entered into uh, Jerusalem, you know the story, the, the, they surrendered the city in Jerusalem, but they surrendered it. They said, we want to surrender it to the person that we find in our books. And so when the Muslim army was told of the description, they said, we know who that man is, but he's in Medina. It was Umar ibn Khattab. And so Umar, when he received note that the city wants to surrender and they're requesting your presence to surrender, Umar took the journey to Jerusalem. And when he took the journey, he approached Baytul Maqdis. And when he saw, the, he saw Baytul Maqdis, and by the way, what is Baytul Maqdis? Baytul Maqdis is not the Dome of the Rock. Baytul Maqdis is actually a compound. It's a compound and it's a fenced compound. Included in it is a number of places. And so of the places is the Dome of the Rock. And that's the famous image that most people associate with Baytul Maqdis. But that's not the masjid itself. That's just the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock didn't exist during the time of the Prophet or Umar or Abu Bakr or Uthman or the Khulafa. It came later. 
Umar radiallahu anhu, when he, he came, he came and he said, this is the place that was built by Dawood, that the Prophet wasallam was taken to on the night's journey. And then he consulted his companions. So he, he, he asked Ka'b al-Lahbar and he said to him, Ka'b uh, was a Jewish uh, convert to Islam. He said to him, do you know where the, the Sakhra is? Do you know where the rock itself is? And he told him yes. And he directed him to where it was. And at that time, it was a dump, basically. It was filled with trash and waste. And so Umar had it cleaned. And then they excavated or they, they brought out, the, they placed the rock. And then Umar suggested and he asked them, well, where should we, how should we make the Qibla? Where should we place the masjid? And so Ka'ab's suggestion was, place it behind the dome of the rock. And so when the people are praying, they are praying to the two qiblas. They're praying to, you know, the dome of the rock is in front of them. And they're still praying towards Mecca. And Umar radiallahu anhu rejected that idea forcefully. And he said, no, absolutely not. We are going to pray. Because Umar is so sensitive, right? He's so sensitive to any sort of innovations coming into the religion. Umar has, was always like that. Radiallahu anhu, that's the way the sahaba were. They, were. they were trying to protect the religion from any sort of a deviance from the religion of the Prophet The dome of the rock in and of itself Has no significance for us of any virtue You don't go, when you go to Al-Aqsa You don't touch the dome of the rock You don't make tawaf around the dome of the rock You don't do anything Rather, Umar who made it a point To have the masjid in front of the dome of the rock So actually it's, it's The dome of the rock is not in your line of vision When it comes to the qibla at all Mecca is uninterrupted Why? So that people There's a, a clear distinction Between where we pray and our qibla Versus the previous qibla And it being a previous qibla Does not bring it any sort of You know, extra virtue now Because You know, as Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah He mentions just like You know, the, the Saturday was The holiday during the law of Moses And Friday became the holiday During the law of Muhammad sallallahu And so a person Doesn't single out Saturday or Sunday With any sort of act of worship Or any sort of ritual because these are days that are abrogated when did, it, when did the dome get its dome? It was built during the time of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan And the, the, the rock itself was uncovered You have Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali The rock is uncovered You have Mu'ayy ibn Abi Sufyan You have Yazid ibn Mu'awiyah You have Marwan All of these guys, the dome of the rock is uncovered Abdul Malik ibn Marwan takes over as Sham And all of a sudden now he's creating this dome Why was he creating the dome? He created it for a political reason, not for a religious reason. The political reason was that Abdul Malik ibn Murwan had a contender for the Khilafah. And that contender was in Mecca. And that's the son of Zubair ibn Awam, the great companion himself, Abdullah ibn Zubair. And so people would go to Hajj in Mecca, of course, and they would meet with Abdullah ibn Zubair. And this guy is contesting him for the Khilafah. So Abdul Malik ibn Murwan wants to divert people away from going to Hajj. And so what does he do? He builds this dome over Baytul Maqdis Because what does Asham have? Asham has Baytul Maqdis And so he wants people to come towards Baytul Maqdis So he needs a little bit more tourism or religious pilgrimage to Baytul Maqdis And so he invests in Baytul Maqdis and he invests in the dome And he used to cloth it in the summer and in the winter time And so it was done for political reasons but nonetheless it stayed ever since then So it's the first Qibla Another virtue of Baytul Maqdis was that the Prophet ﷺ was taken on his Isra' there. The Prophet ﷺ was taken on the night's journey there. 
The question that the scholars asked is why Baytul Maqdis? Why didn't the Prophet ﷺ just go on the Mi'raj straight? What's the purpose of Al-Isra? Why from Mecca to Jerusalem in a single night? The Isra is the famous night's journey and ascension of the Prophet ﷺ that he experienced in the 10th year of his prophethood that he was taken at night to Jerusalem, body and soul, and he was then ascended to the heavens. Why Jerusalem? The scholars mention a number of reasons. Number one is by him going to Jerusalem, it creates a proof against the polytheists and those who doubted him. Because if the Prophet ﷺ simply the next morning told them, I ascended to the heavens, there would have been no mechanism for which the mushrikeen or the polytheists to test him. Because they don't know anything about the heavens. They've never journeyed to the heavens. No one's ever journeyed to the heavens. What questions are you going to ask about the heavens? But when he says to them, I've traveled to Jerusalem tonight, and I came back last night, well then the mushrikeen, they've traveled to Jerusalem too, and they know Jerusalem because of their trade and because of their travel, and so they can ask him and quiz him about Baytul Maqdis. And they know that he's never been there and he's never seen it, so they can ask him about Baytul Maqdis, and they did. And so they quizzed the Prophet ﷺ, or they tested him about Baytul Maqdis, and the Prophet ﷺ he says, when they asked me about Baytul Maqdis, I became scared or I became very apprehensive because he, he was worried that he wasn't going to remember. And then he said, Jibreel السلام, placed an image of Baytul Maqdis in front of my eyes. And I began describing in incredible detail everything there. And so this became a proof against the mushrikeen. Another uh, reason why the scholars mentioned that he had went to Baytul Maqdis was because of honoring Rasulullah sallallahu because of everything that we've mentioned. It is the first qibla and it is the second house of Allah to ever be established on earth and it is the uh, you know, place that was intended and migrated to by all of the prophets and so Rasulullah sallallahu was taken there to pray there. Another virtue of Baytul Maqdis is that it is a place in which prayers are multiplied. You'll read a lot of different narrations as to how many times the prayers are multiplied. According to the narrations, you'll see as high as 50,000, 20,000, 1,000, 500. Authentically, it's reported that in Al-Masjid Al-Haram in Mecca, it's 100,000. When you pray in the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, it's 1,000. The Prophet ﷺ was asked by Abu Dhar. And this is a hadith that's reported by Al-Hakim, and it's the most authentic hadith in this regard. He asked Rasulullah which place is better? Is Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi better or is Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa better? And so Rasulullah says that praying in my masjid equals four prayers in Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. So how many prayers is that then? 250. And he says, and what an excellent prayer place is that? So 250 is the most authentic and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Prophet says, and there may come a time when a person having the size of a rope of land from which they can see Baytul Maqdis is more beloved to them than the world and everything in it, or he said, than the entire world. And this, you know, the scholars commented on this and they said, it's as if the Prophet is talking about this time. And scholars, subhanAllah, who commented on this hadith in the 80s said that it's as if the Prophet is talking about this time. But basically, there's there's this conflict, right? 
And there will be times when people will not have access to Baytul Maqdis And they would wish that they could be able to just see Baytul Maqdis They wish that they'd be able to just pray in Baytul Maqdis But this also alludes to, to something else And that is that uh, Baytul Maqdis and the region of Asham in general Is uh, especially virtuous and incredibly present when it comes to the conversation about the end of days And so not just with regards to what Rasulullah has described And not just what's happened in the past And not, not just what's even present But at the end of days you'll see that Rasulullah mentions many different events that happened And they all take place in Asham Whether it is the return of Jesus Christ Or it is the Antichrist Or whether it is Ya'juj and Ma'juj And they run roughshed over the earth All of this is taking place in Asham And so Asham is this place of Fitan and testing Until the end of days And maybe that is why They are as Allah Or the Prophet ﷺ says In Asham resides uh, Allah's chosen ones from his people There are a few things That I wanted to conclude it with And these are questions that come up a lot With regards to Masjid Al-Aqsa Number one is what is in Masjid Al-Aqsa And we said that it's not just the Dome of the Rock and it's not just the message itself, but it's the entire prayer place. It's the entire complex, the entire complex. And that is what is mentioned as in Masjid Al-Aqsa in the past and the present. The second thing is a lot of people make a mistake of calling it a haram. And in Masjid Al-Aqsa is not a haram. Because a haram has particular rulings. A haram is called a haram because it's a sanctuary. There are things that you are not allowed to do in a haram. Such as hunting, such as Plucking from its trees or cutting down its trees There are rules with regards to haram And none of that is found with regards to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa The last thing that I want to mention is there's a hadith that's a beautiful hadith Although it's weak, it's controversial Some scholars consider it to be weak And some scholars consider it to be authentic And that is the hadith of Maymuna Who said that she asked Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam It's reported by Abu Dawood She said, tell us about Baytul Maqdis or, or tell us what we should do about Baytul Maqdis He said, go to Baytul Maqdis Go and pray in it He said, during that time, that, it was all war in that area But she's asking him And then the Prophet says, he says If you can't go and pray in Baytul Maqdis Then send some oil to be used in its lamps So this hadith is reported by Abu Dawood It was authenticated by Hafiz al-Iraqi It was authenticated by At-Tahawi, it was authenticated by Nawi, it was authenticated by Sheikh Al-Albani at one point And then he held it to be weak at another point, at a later point And so some scholars considered it to be authentic and some scholars called it to be weak But nonetheless, this hadith is encouraging us That even if you can't pray in Masjid Al-Aqsa That you can still serve Masjid Al-Aqsa And there's much that can be done to serve Masjid Al-Aqsa now And one of the Greatest ways Or if not the greatest way Is Dua But the question that we have to ask ourselves is Do I even make dua for Baytul Maqdis Or the people of Baytul Maqdis We just prayed Maghrib Did it have any share of my dua In Salatul Maghrib And so number one is dua There's much also that can be done Number two is spreading awareness About Baytul Maqdis You know something interesting that Mu'arrikhin they say The early scholars of history that when they would talk about Al-Andalus They would say may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala return it to us After they had lost Al-Andalus The Muslims had lost But over time that phrase began being erased from the pen of 
those scholars. And so after a while, it becomes something where it just becomes, you're not even asking for it anymore. The weakest of people and the most incapable of people are the people who are incapable of making dua. So number one is dua. Number two is to actually enliven the discussion about Al-Aqsa and talking about Al-Aqsa and encouraging people. Number three is if a person actually has the opportunity to, to go to Al-Aqsa, then to go to Al-Aqsa and to, to undertake that journey and to see Al-Aqsa and to see the masjid. Because these things, these journeys, they tie a person to those places for a lifetime. Al-Aqsa for people who haven't gone, it's a picture and it's virtues. But for the person who has actually gone, it becomes an experience and it becomes emotion and it becomes memories.